The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that asked for an extension past the trade deadline. I'm Jake Mintz, that's Jordan Schusterman, but our professor said, no, you got to turn your essay in now. I think that is more a reflection on how you've kind of performed in the class thus far. Normally, if you had kind of turned everything in on time uh, and you go to them and it's the first time you've asked for something like this, they're probably going to be like, you know what? If you would like to trade for Justin Brule tonight instead of by 6 p.m., I totally get it. We are we're all humans. We all have things going on. But because you had been let, you'd already asked for multiple extensions on your trades earlier this year. And they said, no, 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 no. If you want to trade for a lefty reliever, you better get this done by 559. Mm. So sorry, dude. Sorry. It nice happens, try. Jordan. It happens. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday morning. The dust has settled on the trade deadline madness. And this show will be taking a look at the trade deadline that was from a bird's eye view. Obviously, yesterday we did our Jordan Reveals the Trades to Me podcast, which you should go and listen. That'll be more of an immediate reaction. This is a much uh, a big picture take on the trade deadline. We will have a special guest, two special guests, yes, both two s- Mets related. Yes, yes. And when we recorded the second special guest, we didn't know it was going to be Mets related. But first, you are going to hear, of course... From our good friend and former producer, Bobby Wagner, he will deliver us a very important edition of MetsCon. Give us a sense of where the the Mets meter is at and where his Mets fandom is today after a balk-off loss. Uh, Just a complete embarrassment for everybody involved last night in Kansas City. And then we will be joined in the past, but also timely, uh, by Drew Gilbert, one of the new top prospects of the New York Mets, who we spoke to at the Futures game. Of course, we ran a good chunk of our Futures game interviews around the Futures game, and you heard a bunch of those, but Drew Gilbert was not one of those. Um, so we had that one kind of in the can. Not that we knew he was about to get traded for Justin Verlander, but it worked out that way. So you're going to hear our conversation with Drew uh, at the end of the show as well. But before we get to those guests, we have some pretty significant actual just like on the field news. I, I got to admit, I haven't been like really focusing on the on the field stuff. I've I've had my my NBA fan uh, hat on in the sense that it's just like, who cares what's happening in the games? I just want to know what teams people are going are, are changing, <laughs> who's on what team and who wants to go elsewhere. And that's kind of what it felt like in, in baseball the last few days is, oh, does he want to go here? Does he not want to go here? Of course, with Eduardo Rodriguez, stuff like that. But as you said, the deadline is over. 
And yet, one of the teams that we will certainly be talking about in the deadline context, the Houston Astros, also gave us some significant on-field news last night because Framber Valdez threw a no-hitter with just one walk against the Cleveland Guardians and reminded us, like, hey, the Astros already had one of the best pitchers in the world, and now they uh, get to reunite him after so long apart with Justin Verlander. But let's focus on Frommer because, Jake, you know, I have adored this man ever since he arrived in the big leagues. He is such a unique and delightful pitcher. And while his ascent with Houston kind of coincided perfectly with everybody hating Houston, um, I think that that kind of helped shield the amount of love that he was getting. And I understood it. But at this point, my goodness, we can just appreciate this guy for what he is, which is one of the best pitchers in the world. Nobody gets as many ground balls and as many strikeouts as Frommer. It is perfect timing and horrible timing at the same time. Throwing a no-hitter the night after the trade deadline is big, ain't nobody got time for that energy. But simultaneously, it is a really opportune reminder that the Houston Astros are coming for your lunch because now they have Justin Verlander back and they are, I believe, only a half game down on the Mm -hmm. Texas Rangers in the AL West. And in an American League picture that looks very cloudy, Houston is emerging yet again as potentially the best team in the entire American League. And Fromber standing up the night of the trade deadline and saying, you idiots, you forgot about us. What are you doing? That's great stuff. And most notably, and he didn't even play last night, but Jordan is back. He had a big homer a couple nights ago. Uh, some interesting things with, with the Astros lineup, uh, recently, I don't know if you've been following some of the Yiner Diaz, uh, discourse where basically Yiner Diaz has been their rookie catcher has been one of their best, one of their best hitters. And Dusty has decided, you know, I'm, I'm only going to play him so much because we need Maldonado. And I know you're number one Maldonado fan, which makes sense, but it is an interesting, uh, kind of conundrum dilemma where, they have actually need it's it's been notable because at times this year it's like wait the Astros offense isn't that good and we have this Diaz guy who's been awesome so that's another one we've talked about how awesome Chaz McCormick has been but now that Altuve and Jordan are back we add in JV they bring back Kendall Graven which I think is also a really nice addition to a bullpen that was obviously already deep and this team's about to go for their seven forget the war I mean of course we're thinking okay they could win it all again this team might be about to appear in their seventh straight championship series which is just so ridiculous but also like yes this is why when you asked me two weeks ago who's the best team in the american league i said the astros before any of these guys were back in before they got justin verlander and before i realized yanner diaz was hitting like he was all these things so i feel pretty good about that call um there's still some questions here and, and you could still say that there's some questions with the rotation depth but like I said, and credit to the Rangers, like this is also part of why the Rangers clearly knew they had to kind of be kind of ridiculously aggressive at the deadline, not just because they were already all in based on their moves this this offseason. Like they know Houston's coming for them too. They're they're no they're no fool, right? And so this is going to be a, an incredible race uh, for the division down the stretch. I have no doubt. And they don't even have to leave Texas for it. Nope, we're going to so, get so convenient. We might get a Verlander Scherzer showdown in Texas. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm, I'm looking at the schedule um, to see. First of all, it's incredible that Verlander that they're about to go play the Yankees <laughs> this weekend. I believe Verlander slated to start in Yankee Stadium, where he's already dominated. Like he's he's owned the Yankees to a hilarious degree in his career. Looks like they have a three game set in Texas, um, in, in 
in Arlington, I should clarify. Thank the you. Beginning of September. Uh, so one more series. So maybe we'll get a, a Scherzer Verlander matchup at some point during that uh, during that series. But yeah, I mean I, that's that really explains a lot of Texas moves. It explains why like we I'm gonna default to the Astros all the time. And uh, Fromber is is great. And I, I gotta say the the last pitch of the no hitter, throwing a curveball in that spot and like getting that kind of weak contact is just like such a perfect encapsulation of why Fromber is so great because he can use that curveball in any way. Like it's it's so unique in that sense. I can't think of another off speed pitch that is used so well to get both swings and misses and weak contact. It is so, so, so special. And that's certainly what stood out about him originally. And now he's, of course, got, you know, two other fantastic pitches. But such a unique pitcher. He did it in 93 pitches. Uh, and I got to be honest, man, I wish he did not walk Oscar Gonzalez because if this was a perfect game, I would be perfectly happy with that. <laughs> that this would be a pitcher. I know it's the Astros, but as far as pitchers that I would have been happy to see throw a perfect game after Felix Fromber is pretty high on the list. All right, let's change gears a little bit and move to the trade deadline. I want us to talk about the deadline from a macro perspective first and think about what makes a good trade deadline. How can a team win the trade deadline? I wrote an article over at Fox Sports talking about the winners and losers of the deadline. I'm sure there are a hundred other articles on the internet about the winners and losers of the deadline. But you cannot really win the deadline at the deadline. It will take years for us to know how good most of these prospects are. And at the very, very least, Jordan, you have to wait till the end of the World Series to know who won and who lost the deadline. We prefer action. We dislike inaction. But maybe Brian Cashman, GM of the Yankees, who I'm going to crap on a little bit later, maybe there were bad moves that he didn't make. And he deserves credit for that and we'll never know. So I just yeah. think it's important to remind it. The moves you make are very important in the context of where your team is at. I would say that the Yankees and the Braves were similarly active. However, Braves fans are not mad this morning because <laughs> their team fucking rips and the Yankees do not. So I would like to begin by breaking the deadline down. I see there are five categories. The big buyers, the buyers, the sit-on-your-hands inactive kings, the sellers, and the big sellers. Jordan, let's begin with the big buyers. I have five teams in this group. The mm -hmm. Angels, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, the Rangers, and the Astros. Where would you like to start? Well, I think Texas – let's just quickly mention like Texas and Houston. We just talked about them. Texas is at the top of this list. They – added the most impact this deadline, especially if you include Aroldis Chapman. I think that that is when you consider what they needed, which was multiple pitchers to get outs and you get Austin Hedges, which will help multiple of your pitchers get outs. That is exactly what they needed. Like their size still have a lot of questions about some of the pitchers that they brought in, including Scherzer and including, you know, including Chapman and whatever. That's fine. But they essentially accomplished what they really needed to do. Will it work? We'll see. But they did that and they brought in the most. Excuse me, sir. Can I have half of a playoff rotation, please? Yep. No yep. mayo. Yeah. <laughs> no mayo. But but yes, Austin Hedges. Because that's going to make it taste way better. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So Texas, I feel like they, they there was no secret about them, and the Angels also also the Angels. But 
at the same time, the Angels, like, now that we got, the, you know, they made this big Giolito trade in Lopez, but, like, are you surprised or disappointed they didn't do even more? I mean, they, they, again, they had very, very limited. I tweeted this as soon as after the Giolito trade. It's like, they don't have a lot much else to offer, so <laughs> they can only do so much more. I think they did about as well as they could have done with what they I had. Agree. And... CJ Crone, Randall Gritchick are both legitimate everyday players. And I have no issues with them being in the lineup. And Lucas is a pretty good starter and Reynaldo Lopez is a pretty good reliever. Like I I think this is about as much they could have gone for it without yeah. really emptying out the farm system. Yeah. And and I know you you had quite the dramatic reaction to Dominic Leone, one of uh, our favorite moments of yesterday's stream but he will he will probably help in some way but again like this is going to be way more about Grichuk and and Crone like truly like I am more worried about this Angels offense without Trout than I am about the pitching at this point which seems a little nuts I'm also worried about the pitching but more worried about how how bad the offense has looked with all these injuries a lot of them have been terrible luck two other teams on this list here Miami and Arizona Miami, I think, had my favorite trade deadline. Just I know. Well, that's why I'm wearing the, the Marlins hat. I mean, they made yeah. us proud. I don't know if these are <laughs> definitely the smartest moves forever, value-wise, but I don't care because they realized how often will we be in a season where the Mets suck and are actively selling and we can buy from them, right? And even have a team where, where the Phillies are, are a mess and, and the Padres, because you, you have to look at the bigger picture when we're talking about the wild card, right? Like this is a golden opportunity for the Marlins. And I'm glad that they did something. Jake Berger is a fun ad. Josh Bell is a fun ad. And I got to say, while they did ship out a former first round pick in Khalil Watson, I really like the pickup of Ryan Weathers. A former first-round pick who has admittedly looked terrible this year. I totally get it. He's 23, and if I'm going to send him to any team to figure out how to – like, the stuff's still pretty good. Like, hell yeah. Even if he turns into a multi-inning reliever, like, that is a great gamble for the Marlins to bring in a guy like Weathers. So, And then they got Jorge Lopez, too, who probably does have – I know he struggled this year – more upside. So I I like this I like this deadline a lot, um, especially for what they need right now. Yeah, and anytime the fish are swimming – towards the goal and not away from it. You have to applaud them. Last team, the Diamondbacks. Not as obvious a big buyer. I think you could put them in the regular buy category. Yeah. They got Tommy Pham, Peter Strzelecki, Jace Peters, and Paul Seawald. But when you put that in the context of what the Giants and the Dodgers did, mm-hmm. I think the Diamondbacks deadline looks really good because the Dodgers, and we can talk about them a bit now, Yes, they went out and got five players, I believe. Lance Lynn, Joe mm-hmm. Kelly, Enrique Hernandez, Ryan Yarborough, and Med Rosario. The Dodgers failed to accomplish their deadline goal. And we know that their deadline goal was to add starting pitching. Because Kershaw and Bueller are hurt. Julio Arias and Tony Gonsolin suck. Dustin May's arm went kablooey again. And none of the starting pitchers, the young guns, have come up and really solidified themselves. And so... This is a very murky Mishkapoy pitching situation, and they yeah. needed some stability. And so they went out and got Lance Lynn, and that's helpful. Great. Ten points for Gryffindor. But it was clear that they were trying to go get Eduardo Rodriguez from the Tigers. They had a deal in place, and Eduardo Rodriguez said, no, thank you. I don't want to move to L.A., which is kind of what, what, what we said when we got hired by Fox Sports. And they were like, we're headquartered in L.A. And we were like, can we not? And they were like, yeah, sure. 
And so we relate to that very much. Let's hit on that quickly, and then I'll jump back to Arizona. Um, it is very easy, and I, I mean, we said it too. Like, wow, why wouldn't you want to leave the Tigers to go pitch for the Dodgers? Whatever. Uh, he has his own reasons, and he wanted to stay closer to family. All that, like, that's totally fine. Obviously, going to respect all that. But th- the biggest failure here, and, and I feel bad saying it because I think we believe generally in this front office, but like, this is on the Tigers for not having this communication before yesterday afternoon. Um, it's not like they didn't know he had a no trade clause. Like, I know it wasn't really reported that much, but like th- they signed that contract. That it cannot get to the point where they have a deal with the Dodgers if at no point that they have communicated with him to understand what was realistic, especially if you're going to take his deadline day. That is, I think, very poorly done. Now, hey, now maybe they just keep Eduardo Rodriguez and he's uh, he seems like he maybe wants to stick around like that. That could end up working out for them. But that's that's not that's that's on the Tigers there. It's they, I know people were making fun of the Dodgers for it, but like that yeah. is really on Detroit. It's a uh, a bad look. Yeah, but I will to, also say Lance yeah. Lynn, seven strong innings last night. I know it was against Oakland, but I'm sure he will be good for them. But they needed more than one. So I agree with you relative Arizona. And the other thing I would say about Arizona, too, is they spent significantly on Seawald, right? That was like a big investment to get Seawald, and hopefully that will help. And to get FAM in, in this such weak hitter market, for them to end up with FAM is also, I think, a win. Uh, it's not a fit we, we anticipated, but like you got to give them credit for that too. For them being, for Fam and Candelario to end up on Arizona and Chicago is really uh, quite a, a strange turn of events when we kind of see what the how, how few hitters were available in this market. All right, let's take a quick break. I need some water. This deadline's got me parched. And when we when we come back, we will take a look at the regular buyers. Those who sat on their hands, the sellers, and the big sellers. Talk to you in a second. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world, and I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman, a couple of friends chatting about the balls and the bees. Let's get in to the buyers at the deadline, the teams who made some moves, who got a little bit better who felt obligated to acquire a piece or two, but did not sell the farm, did not wring the towel dry, and did not wow us necessarily. One of the moves we talk about in this group of nine teams is going to be a huge difference maker. We don't know who it is yet. The Orioles, the Red Sox, the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Phillies, the Cubs, the Brewers, the Dodgers, who we already talked about, and the Padres. Let's begin in the American League East, where the Orioles, Red Sox, Rays and Blue Jays all got incrementally better at the deadline, kind of in lockstep with one another. No one got obviously better than anyone else. The Orioles went out and traded for Jack Flaherty to bolster their rotation. Flaherty is not the pitcher he once was. He does have this mystique of upside that maybe over the last two months he could recapture his Cy Young contending form from 2019. I'm skeptical that that's going to happen. I think that's more of a pipe dream. But having a league average starter in 
the Orioles rotation is definitely useful when you consider that Tyler Wells is very out of sorts right now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the, this is not the move that the Orioles were teasing or could have made with their glut of position player prospects. And I've spoken a bit about this. I just think it's because there wasn't a pitcher on the market who was controllable that they thought it was worth pushing the chips in for. And I think that's, this is an example of relative inaction that I think does make sense. Yeah. And it's interesting contrasting it with last season's deadline for the Orioles. But I agree with you. Like, I'd be feeling a little disappointed, but not super angry. Clearly, this team has already made it to this point for a reason. I think you could certainly argue that Dylan Cease would have been worth putting some significant guys into a deal to get. And maybe those talks happened, how close it was, who knows. Um, it sounds like, you know, the White Sox wanted a lot, as they should, for sure. So it's that's fine. I, I, I don't know. I, I Like... I'm glad they ended up with something because I think even though it doesn't make that big of a difference, like the, as you know, because you were getting texts yesterday, like it was, it was going to look kind of, kind of embarrassing because it's not even like, oh, you know, go for it. You're in the first place. Like you need a pitcher. <laughs> so I'm glad that they at least uh, did that. You put Boston here in, in this category. I think that's probably a little generous. I like Luis Arias a, a lot, but I, I would actually put them closer to the inaction category just because like they had a lot of pieces that they could have actually went out and sold and they, they clearly stood pat with Duvall and Paxton and whatever. And then that's because they played better lately. So, but Urias just isn't, I, I believe that, that I like that pickup. It's like a nifty move, but it's, it's hard to say that they like definitely got better. I think that would be a bit of a stretch. Whereas the rest of these teams, I do feel about that. I agree with that. Uh, no one will be able to see this because this is an audio format, but I did just copy and paste them from the buy group into the in action group and uh, the Jake Mintz regrets the error. The Tampa Bay uh, Angel Rays, Aaron Savali joining the club in exchange for Kyle Manzardo, a first base prospect. Savali has been outstanding this year. 2-3-4 ERA and 13 starts. He has a very interesting pitch mix. Uh, he throws five pitches very often, which is something that not a lot of players do. And he makes the Rays better. Like any pitcher that you acquire who could theoretically start a postseason game for you, I think is an automatic win. Yep. Even if they didn't do too much else. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and it was a bold move for sure. And I still could have argued I would have liked to see more from them. Uh, but I think that that's a solid we got better today. And that's kind of that simple. Uh, staying in the AL East, the Toronto Blue Jays. Adding two Cardinals in two separate trades, which I guess I didn't totally process until yesterday. Now, the first one for Jordan Hicks, of course, was more of a, you know, predictable one, made sense. And then yesterday, after the Bobochette injury, it sounds like that's not serious, but they go out and get Paul DeYoung. They called them back and they said, hey, uh, is that guy still around? Uh, this is another one where... Are these, I mean, the Hicks one could be an impact addition. It could be a negatively impactful addition, depending on the day that you watch him pitch. But DeYoung makes a ton of sense. I was honestly kind of surprised that the Cardinals couldn't get more for DeYoung with respect to Matt Swanson, uh, or however that's pronounced. But uh, with his contract, I mean, I, I think it made some sense. And I they got better, too. I mean, maybe some Blue Jays fans wanted to see more because you're going to need all you, all you can at this point in the AL East and in this postseason race. But I think they also got better. Another simple buyer in the NL East, the Philadelphia Phillies, went out and acquired all-star Michael Lorenzen from the Detroit Tigers. He will slot into their rotation, giving the Phillies a sneaky amount 
of rotation depth. Now, you hypothesized yesterday that Lorenzen could end up in the bullpen for them. Mm-hmm. They're starting rotation right now. Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, the spectacular and surprising Christopher Sanchez. Go look up his numbers. Taiwan Walker and Ranger Suarez. Mm-hmm. Like, those are five starting pitchers. You can yeah. never have too many. I would imagine Lorenzen will get some run in the rotation over the next couple of weeks for the Phillies, but you could move to the bullpen in October. He makes them better. They made a similar move last year, bringing in Noah Syndergaard and Kyle Gibson. Um, kind of filled that role for them down the stretch. He's uh, not someone that you feel great starting a postseason game, but he's someone who's going to give them depth and someone who can work through the order one time in October. Yep, no, totally agree. And Sounds like they are going to kind of keep rolling with the six-man rotation now for a little bit, which is interesting. Could also see Sanchez kind of bouncing back out into into a, uh, a you know a bullpen role at some point, especially as a left-hander. So yeah, I agree. Not not crazy, but they certainly got better. And then they add Rodolfo Castro, the dude who slid into third base and his phone fell out of his pocket. Which, <laughs> but but also a switch hitter with some interesting tools that has kind of ended up on the outskirts of Pittsburgh's plans. I like this move. Um, Bailey Falter will now go and try and rediscover himself in Pittsburgh in some slightly lower pressure environments. Go Cubs, go baby! Bringing back Heimer Condelario, who is one of the more enviable bats on the market. He played last night, which is hilarious because I did not know about this trade until he was already in the starting lineup, which was a funny dynamic of the deadline for me. Uh, but Condelario, him coming back to the Cubs just shows that they're they're going to try and make the playoffs here in 2023. Recent yeah. surge over the last couple of weeks has put them, you know, I think three and a half back of the NL wild card. Condelario makes their lineup better. Third base was kind of a weak spot for them. Patrick Wisdom is super volatile, and Nick Madrigal can't hit the ball out of the infield. And you know, Jimer's going to give them uh, going to give them a little bit more juice there. Four games out of first place. Hello, forget the wild card. We're four games out of first in NL Central, uh, beating the the pants off of the Reds last night. And uh, yeah, let's let's see it. You know, plus sixty seven run differential. It's it's nice to see the Cubs. Uh, it's, it's also nice because we have all like with, with all of, of course, we'll be talking plenty about New York. Um, it's nice to have Cubs fans. Like we're going for it. Screw it. You know, we have all these other, some of these bigger market New York teams just in complete disarray and just like talking about tanking and the Cubs are now back in it. Cause we like, and obviously the White Sox too. Like it's nice to have Cubs fans really, really feeling, feeling themselves. Cubs fans, an underratedly hilarious fan base. Yes, Absolutely. The Brewers, another team that's soft bought at the deadline, adding Carlos Santana, Mark Canna, and Andrew Chafin. None of these moves are going to motivate you to write your parents a letter and tell them about the Brew crew pushing all the chips in. But Milwaukee got incrementally better yesterday, as it feels like they do every deadline. And I think they remain the favorite in the NL Central, even though they've struggled recently. Canna's a really solid pickup. They needed another, uh, just another confident bat they could put into the middle of the lineup. Terang and Joey Weimer have, you know, slid a little bit since their super hot start. Uh, anything on the Brewers? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Like the Brewers deadlines always feel like this to me. Yeah, I mean, last year was much more dramatic, you know, shipping out Hater. I think what's interesting here now is, of course, they've had this Yelich resurgence, but you look at the rest of this lineup and besides Willie Adamas, it's just so many guys that are just new. Santana and Can obviously, and then you have the the rookies in Freelich and Terang and Weimer, and then William Contreras, which is just 
was shocking that they got him at the time and has been every bit as good as you could possibly hope. So um, still some questions there, I would say, on the pitching staff. And, you know, Chafin will help that. But, yeah, I, I think that they, they, did, they did a really nice job. We talked enough about the Dodgers already who went out and acquired everyone that they used to love. The Padres, one of the more bizarre deadlines. There were rumors, would they sell? Would they buy? They ended up kind of soft buying. No obvious huge acquisition for them, bringing in Rich Hill, G-Man Choi, Garrett Cooper, and Scott Barlow. Now, the thing about the Padres and the reason that they've been a bit of a wet fart over the entirety of the season is that they lack depth. The 27th best player in the Padres organization is nowhere near as good as the 27th best player in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. And criticism from around the league about A.J. Preller and his ability to build a roster is just that. Like, he has not shown the skill necessary to win over the course of an entire season. I know they made the playoffs last year. I'm aware of that. But having big stars is awesome and helpful, but it doesn't get you all the way there. Rich Hill, G-Man Choi, Garrett Cooper, Scott Barlow, those are all perfect, like, back end of the roster guys who are better than the other options the Padres already had in-house. Yep. And it really just is about, you know, Choi and Cooper are just, they're just going to hope that they can provide more, presumably in a platoon role, than what Carpenter has at DH. And I don't really know how Carpenter still fits on this roster at all. I know he has a contract that still extends to next season, which is really wild. So that's that's clearly been a big a big whiff, but this is a nice way to kind of patch that up. Absolutely. Those are our buyers. Let's quickly run through our inactive teams. We already mentioned the Red Sox. We moved into this group. The Braves, the Yankees, the Reds, the Giants, the Twins, and the Mariners. The Braves' inactivity is totally fine. They brought in Brad Hand and Nicky Lopez. The Braves could have done nothing. Alex Anthopoulos could have given a press conference and said, we are not trading anyone. I am putting my phone in a river. Do not call me. We will see you in the NLCS. And I would have been like, okay. Sounds they good. Are, sounds good. They're so far ahead of everybody else. What an impressive organization. Do Brad Hand and Nicky Lopez make them better? Yes. One front office person I texted, I was like, what trades did you like? And this person said, Nicky Lopez to the Braves. That guy is the vibes. <laughs> well, I was also going to say, uh, Pierce Johnson is a nice pickup too. Like Those are bullpen guys that will be getting outs in October. And so, and that's kind of all they were looking for. They, like the whole lineup is under contract until 2039 so like it's fine like they're it's it's an amazing team there's no reason to do anything more than they needed to the giants and the mariners all kind of lumped together a little bit because okay they are not the favorite in the division they yeah. are a little bit on the outside looking in from a playoff perspective i know the giants are higher up than the mariners their inactivity i find to be kind of the most concerning here i would put the reds in that group too what about Minnesota? Yeah. I guess I mean, it Minnesota, is all these teams, yeah. Minnesota is interesting because Cleveland, you know, we've made moves towards the future, even though they're right in striking distance of the, of the division. Um, I think that San Francisco is the one here. San Francisco and Seattle. The Reds are different because people thought they were going to lose 95 games this year. And so they're kind of in an Orioles situation from last year where it's like, look, man, if I'm Nick Crawl, I understand the 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 urgency from the fans who want to see us go for it. And I know some Reds fans tweeting like, the whole point of any of this is to win postseason games. If we have a chance to do that, we should try to do that now. I totally respect that. 
immediately last night, you know, Ben Lively, who's been solid, you know, gets smashed by the Cubs. And it's just like, oh, my God, should have got a pitcher, whatever. But the Reds' future is bright no matter what. They did nothing. Sam Mole, fine. Okay, that's fine. But the Giants and Mariners, right. It's more of a, like, okay, you have a team that is sort of in the mix. And the Giants, in particular, feels like are closer to it. And th- that's the one that, that surprised me more. The Mariners made a big organizational decision to trade Paul Seawall, which you know sent them backwards in some respects, but they did bring in a significant amount of talent that should be ready in the near future. Whereas the Giants, like that's AJ Pollock, Mark Mathias, like I, that's one where I, I would be way more disappointed. I know Mariners fans are a little bit disappointed in that respect, but you could at least, they made some big move that at least said, said something. It made some sort of statement. And the Giants and Twins, it's like, come on, guys. Well, even though the Twins sat on their butt, I would still describe them as a winner because of how much Cleveland punted. Sure. No, I mean, I, I think, yeah, yeah, right. And we'll see how much the Savali thing comes back to bite them. I like the moves they made for the long term and getting Watson and Manzardo. But no, I agree with you. I agree with you in that sense. Um, but again, like the thing I've been saying about Minnesota all year is you are good enough to back your way into a division title. But if you would like to win a postseason game, which I would imagine is like a pretty, you know, it's something the Twins would like to do is win a postseason game. Uh, that is going to have, they need more than that. I mean, this they have a good enough pitching staff to win a single postseason game, but that's what's disappointing from their perspective. Do you want to talk about the Yankees? Yeah, let's talk about the Yankees. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk to Bobby Wagner here in a little bit and do MetsCon. Um, the, the New York newspapers right now are like it's like what do you what is more fun to come up with the headline for right the Mets pivoting from the most expensive team ever to like a legitimate seemingly rebuild or the Yankees essentially not knowing what to do with their hands and just standing there while every other team made a trade until you decided Keenan Middleton uh, is is shocking and my, like Yankees fans are clearly so much more upset right now than Mets fans, and I can't blame them because I don't I don't know what the what the plan is what the direction is and it what it really feels like with the Yankees is they succeeded in the one thing they had to do which is keep Aaron Judge and then after that I know they they signed Carlos Rodon they've just said. Guys, can you just give us a second? We we signed Aaron Judge, and the Yankees are like, no. And this was the whole concern is like, okay, great, you signed Judge and you know Rodon, but then he ended up being hurt. But did they get better? No, they're clearly even worse and worse and worse. And oh, what a slog of a team! And uh, I don't think it's going to get any better. Last year at the deadline, the Yankees were really good, and Brian Cashman understood that the Yankees were good enough to make a run in October. Mm-hmm. And what did he do? He went out and got Andrew Benintendi and Frankie Montes. Yes, you could say that those moves didn't end up moving the needle, but like he went for it. Like the Yankees did kind of go for it a little bit yeah. last year. Bader. They made Hello. Bader. They, they made the big right. decision to get Bader, which was kind of curious at the time, but turned out to be brilliant. Right. They were active last year. They were not active this year. And that to me speaks volumes that Brian Cashman does not think that the team he has assembled is good enough to win the World Series. Totally. And not only that, he does not believe that the team he assembled, plus any additions during the deadline, is good enough to win the World Series. And you know what, Jordan? I agree. Yeah. But 
to many Yankees fans this May, then why don't we try and get something back? Why don't we do a soft sell? Why don't we try and trade Glaber Torres? Why don't we try and do all those things? Not that they had that much to offer, but Bader, right? Bader was scratched yesterday. It's like, oh, at least they'll trade Bader. Okay, great. But that's the thing. Like, I, I'm just trying to see something that makes you feel better about next year even. And that's not, that's just not the case. There's too much faith in the inevitability of Yankeedom here, where it feels like Brian Cashman is almost saying, well, I mean, we're the Yankees, so like, you know, things are going to come up well for us eventually, whereas you got to make your own luck in this world, my friend. Yeah, yeah, but it is somewhere in the middle, because I do agree with you. I think he is looking at his team, and it's like, yeah, we're not that good, which is true, which is but a it, smart assessment. But also, when you're the GM of the Yankees, like, you kind of need to pick a path, and right. this is not a path. You're still standing there and other teams are passing you by in other directions. The Yankees exist to do shit. That is kind of the whole point of the Yankees, right? Mm -hmm. They do things. They build things. They make things. They go for things. They're the Yankees. They're the most famous organization in our sport. And to see Cashman turtle (laughs) in that moment at the press conference, right? He had some quote I saw in Newsday where he was like, yeah, I didn't see what the other teams did. It's like, yes, you did. Shut the fuck up. Yes, you saw what the other teams <laughs> it's did. It's like you didn't see it. Then there were other things where it was like, yeah, the Yankees were like difficult to deal with during the deadline because they didn't really know. Like they didn't have a very clear willingness to kind of work towards any sort of goal. And it's like, all right, well, that's how you end up with. Keenan Middleton and Spencer Howard. Uh, but it's not their fault. Like, I feel bad. It's not like they tweet out the graphic. Welcome to New York, Spencer and Keenan. It's like, oh, my God. You're putting like, those guys in bad such for those a tough guys spot. Yeah, totally. That's um, brutal. All right. Anyway. Very quickly, Jordan. Very quickly. The cells. These are simple. The Royals, Guardians, Tigers, A's, Nats, Rockies, and Pirates all got worse. And they got worse on purpose. And they acquired players who will help them in the future. Some teams did more than others. Some teams look better than others. We already talked about the Tigers. I would say the one club in this group that stands out are the Guardians, who shipped off Josh Bell and Aaron Savali, two players who made their 2023 team better in favor of Kyle Manzardo and Khalil Watson, players who they hope will make their 2024, 2025, and 2039 teams better. It is an admission of sorts that the Guardians do not think they are good enough to win the division. They do not believe they are good enough to win the World Series. And again, I think that is correct. What the Guardians did at this deadline is what Yankees fans wish the Yankees had done, where it's the soft sell. They're not trading away Shane Bieber or any of the really key players to the team, but they are getting rid of players to bring in guys for the future. And that is at least a plan. It is a plan that maybe I... I disagree with slightly because this division is so weak and they should just spend some money instead of this. However, there is a blueprint here, one that I'm sure Yankees fans are enviable or are, are definitely envying. Uh, Chris Antonetti had some quote where it was like, hey, you know, they're like, hey, so you signed Josh Bell and Mike Zanino and those guys are not here anymore. And he's like, yeah, you know, that didn't work out. Those are the risks you run, you know, when you wade into the free agent waters. I'm like, well, God damn it. Cleveland's never signing a free agent ever again. Uh, it was a good run. They really, you know, put big time money investing in the free agent. And they're like, why would we even bother? We could just keep being cheap and keep acquiring good players and developing players in other ways, which they're unfortunately probably correct. But those are the quotes that are like disappointing to hear and frustrating to hear. 
but that's kind of the, the, the nature and state of our sport right now. The three big sellers, the Mets, the Cardinals, and the White Sox. White Sox and Cardinals, I think, is pretty simple. They had a bunch of players who are going to be free agents at the end of the year. These two teams were supposed to be very good, and they disappointed. And so they took all those free agents to be, and they shipped them off to contenders, and they got a bunch of prospects in return. These farm systems are revitalized. They're replenished. Water in the desert. How good did they do? We won't know for a while. But it's certainly... Like, they did what they were supposed to do. The White Sox and Cardinals, mission accomplished as far as the deadline is concerned. Yeah, and the Cardinals, they did it. They traded everybody. They they managed to trade every single rental that they had, and they didn't end up moving Dylan Carlson or any of the younger hitters, which is fine. They can make that decision this offseason, whatever. Really like what they did. I think the White Sox did pretty well uh, uh, as well, so credit to them. And then, yeah, the Mets, like, what's most interesting about these three teams is how we felt about them coming into the year and where, how good we think all three of them will be next year, which is a good transition into our <laughs> Mets con segment. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, Bobby Wagner will join us and deliver us an oh-so-important edition of Mets con. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast. Uh, nuclear proliferation has been in the news recently because of the movie Oppenheimer. But what that movie will not tell you is how close we are to Mets assured destruction. Yes, friends, it is time for MetsCon, which means we must bring in the Metspert himself, Bobby Wagner. Hello, Bobby. How are you doing? Uh, I had to talk about the Mets. I was told that I could come on here and explain how fission and fusion work, like in the movie Oppenheimer. Whoa, spoilers. <laughs> I haven't had time to go see it because apparently it takes a lot of time to go see it. Uh, Bobby, you're here to talk about the Mets. Please remind everybody what the concept of MetsCon is and then deliver us your official uh, measure of where MetsCon is at because, Bobby, this is... This might be kind of the last one we do for a while because they're sort of declaring the direction that they're headed. And I'm curious where your head is at. Those will be the questions I ask. But before we ask you some questions, where are we at? Where is the MetsCon measure at? Okay, so the concept of MetsCon, let's just to be clear, this goes from five is the the best that you could be. Like five is like we're chill, we're We're hanging out. Just like the DEFCON scale, it goes in reverse. I think this confuses a lot of people. Yes. And one is like absolute. Here's the description for one, according to Wikipedia, which is my source for all things Department of Defense. Nuclear war is imminent or has already begun. Imminent (laughs) or has already begun. I don't think that we can say that we're at Metscon 1 right now because they didn't trade any of the the core. They didn't didn't decide to blow it up. And as, as Billy Epler said have a full fire a liquidation so i don't that would have been nuclear war to me so that's like alonzo trade trade. is the first nuclear warhead bobby let me just respond and say that dealing away two future hall of fame pitchers does not qualify as blowing it up for you well it does qualify as blowing it up but i don't think they set off like a nuclear arm okay so it sounds like you're leaning more two or three Based on the the Metsness of it all, because we need to talk about the grand direction. So is that is that fair? Are we going with two or three? Well, so, so this is the tr- the trouble with Metscon is that and def- the Defcon scale is that 
it's increasing. So if you're at two, what you're implying is that you're about to get to one and we're going in reverse right now. So maybe there was like a hot second where we thought it was one yesterday. Ooh, that's a great point. I think that's a really good point. And now we're like sliding backwards a little bit because I don't feel anything at all right now. I feel like there's sort of a calm post storm. The hurricane has blown through. does that mean that we are already in the nuclear wasteland? That no, no, the no, bomb no. has gone off and nuclear fallout, we are yes. fallout. You are you are wandering through the wreckage of of your town, and and you are bleary eyed and unsure where to go. I think I think it means that potentially there's no use for this dumb little scale anymore. But wow. but but. You remember I tried to retire this when they signed Francisco Lindor to the extension, which is actually hilarious <laughs> sure in did. retrospect. Just one of the more embarrassing things that I've ever put to recorded medium. I think, counterintuitively, I think we are at MetsCon 4. Okay, Increased okay. intelligence watch and strengthened security measures. I'm looking into Billy Epler. I'm seeing what Steve Cohen is doing. I'm trying to see if he's going to actually trade all of these dudes in the offseason. Mm-hmm. Because... Now the the safety's off at this point, right? Like they the plan didn't work. Shocking. The guy who built the 2018 Angels doesn't know how to build a championship roster. That's so mind-blowing. I never would have guessed that that would have happened. That's so crazy. But they are taking a strategic step back. And so I it's actually kind of chill in Mets world now. I have some right. sort some sense of finality. Yes. And so that I think is the main the one big question that I want to ask you here today is when Max Scherzer comes out and just tells everyone <laughs> what the plan is, which was an all-time move from Max and like not surprising at all. I love that guy. Just incredible stuff, right? <laughs> and some people are like, wow, like why is he airing these private conversations? What what the hell does he care? Like he's on the Rangers now. He Max Scherzer doesn't care what bridges he's burning, but he also is a guy that he's cares 40. about the truth <laughs> and cares about like when he see, hears Billy Epler say one right. thing, he's like, well, this is what he told me, right? Right. So, Does that make you feel better or worse combined with the point you just said, which is that the strangest element of all of this is that Billy Epler is the one being asked to undergo this dramatic reconstruction of the roster. And so that is where I I want to really understand kind of where your headspace is at and whether Max's comments combined with Billy Epler's comments make you feel better or worse about the next 12 months, 24 months, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you for asking. I love to answer tough questions like this um, on your guys' podcast. But before I do, really quickly, I'd like to give a piece of advice to Billy Epler, which is he should be wearing a dad hat. You know, his head is not the shape for one of those normal fitted hats. And every time I see him doing one of these press conferences with one of those hats, he just looks like a guy that they found off the street. And they were like, put this hat on and talk about the trade that you just made. Steve, he just does him not and look Steve like Cohen, a baseball guy. Him and Steve Cohen, I guess I've seen, you very rarely see front office or owners wearing or owners you see it wearing hats. You'll see them, of course, wearing like the the polo, the very generic, yes, you know, golf shirt of the team. But the hat is such a unique look for a GM. I totally agree with you. It smacks of hello, fellow Mets fans. <laughs> like hello, fellow kids. Uh, to answer your question, obviously, reading the Max quotes in the Ken Rosenthal exclusive story was a really like embarrassing moment as a Mets fan because the the truth is they either lied to the fan base all off season, or they lied to two future hall of famers who are heavily involved in the major league baseball players association so that they could waive their no trade clause, which is a potential grievance. I would have to assume you can't just like lie and say you're going to, I mean, 
there's no way they would win that grievance because you can't prove that they did it didn't want to not compete in 2024 and then change right. their mind and sign Shohei Otani. But like, you really should not be misrepresenting your intentions as a front office to guys to get them to waive their no trade clause to send them to a different team like that. They so those are really the only two choices, which I don't feel good about either of them. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that like Billy Epler truly believes that they're taking a strategic reset or whatever he's calling it or or what is it, reallocating Steve's investment in the club. Yes, repurposing. Repurposing, repurposing of sorry, Steve's repurposing, investment. Repurposing of Steve's investment. I just I love to repurpose at all of my friends' investments, you know? Oh, I do that all investments the time. every day. Like I I mean Isn't that what being an investment banker is? You're repurposing investments? Right. I have a whole bit on Tippy Pitches right now about how I don't I pretend to not know what investment bankers or financial analysts do, risk mm. analysts. It's a real fun oh. bit that I they have. They analyze risk, today. Bobby. Well, exactly. It's just yeah. Billy Epler is somewhat of a risk analyst himself. He's like, we should have more risk in the club. We so I have think less risk in the club. I am perplexed by the lack of frustration in Mets fan world right now. I would be pulling my hair out if I were you because you were promised optimism. And I understand that Mets fandom is a cycle of being given optimism and having it crushed by the reality of this cruel world. I understand that. But this Mm -hmm. felt different because the bags of money were being ripped open and the team was going to try and win a freaking World Series. They were carrying the most expensive roster in the history of the fucking sport, Bobby. And four months later, they have turned face all the way. And it is so rational to do that where they are at right now, but it is so embarrassing. And the worst part of it for me is what you mentioned, that Billy Epler is the one pulling the levers. You're going to let this guy be the architect of the repurpose when he's not going to be the person in charge in the three The architect months? of the repurpose. I, I call it dibs on that for my Mets book about how this turns around. <laughs> I just like, I would be right. so much more mad than you are right now. I, and usually I feel the opposite about Mets fans. To be How clear. could I be mad though? Like I was mad last year when... Max Scherzer put up a dud in the wild card game and against Atlanta a week before. Like I was mad then. I we I don't know if I came on and did baseball barbecue at that moment, but I was pretty mad. Uh, my friends and listeners of the Tipping Pitches podcast can attest to that. But like, uh, of course, that was because I actually expected that team to be good. I think that what you're talking well, about good. the the yeah, well they, they were good up until like the last eight days. But what you're talking about is you're surprised that people aren't more mad or aren't more disappointed. It's because like this was the most half hearted way to spend $350 million on a team that you could have ever imagined. They just like looked around and they were like, Oh, we could sign that guy. We could (laughs) sign that guy. That's why it's like, Oh, you're reminded that Billy Epler is running this team. There was, there was nothing about them. Any of the moves that were made that were not incredibly obvious that fan blogs could have not predicted two weeks before the off season started. And yes, they signed Justin Verlander because they were willing to pay him but, the same contract as Scherzer. And it's like this team was uninspiring from the very jump. I think that I had a lot of hope about the fact that Cohen was willing to sign all these contracts and the Correa thing was obviously hilarious and then it was not so funny anymore. But like when we went into this season after three weeks, it was pretty clear that this team just did not want to be good. <laughs> Even if they had the players to be good, no one on the team wanted to be fucking good. And I'm usually not the type of person who's like, this team doesn't have it. They don't have the juice, but like, I don't know, man. 
I watched a lot of Mets teams that were sad and did not have the juice over the years, and this is one of them. Uh, my last two things, and then we can say goodbye. First of all, to Jake's point, what I'm hearing a lot of from Bobby too, and and why we can never possibly understand it, is that you know we were not, as some would say, born in it, molded by it. <laughs> the Metsness of it all is not something we can ever fully understand. But the last but part, no, but that, we're but yeah. we're Jewish. I know. So we can understand some of it. I know. Right. But by the way, many people I ask me, like, to... how did you and Jake and Jordan get along so well? I'm like, well, because I'm a men's man. And Jake, Jake, Jake I says just... that's the closest thing to being culturally Jewish. Hold on. I have to mention, just because you, you make that reference, Jake, that when we talked about the Luis Angel Acuna uh, acquisition, and you said, <laughs> If his name was Luis Angel Mandelbaum, uh, people wouldn't be as excited. <laughs> Someone so tweeted at us and was like, I'm pretty sure if there was a 50 FB shortstop named Mandelbaum, a lot of men's fans would be excited. And I said, you are correct, sir. So anyway, that made me laugh. Last point, Bobby. Um, back to, again, getting back to the MetsCon and kind of assessing the scale and why it isn't uh, imminent or nuclear destruction is already here, is that core that you refer to. And that is the part that I am thinking about. Because it's one thing to lie to Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, who is who's granted and amazing as they are right now in their careers and everything, blah, blah, blah. They are not Mets, right? They are, you yeah. know, mercenary hired guns, right? They are no, but not. They still, but J- Justin still gets a thank you post. He sure does. Thank you, JV. Thank you, JV. Thank work. you right. for those 15 stars. That was nice. Um, but like I think about Brandon Nimmo, man, and I yeah. think forget Pete, right? I mean, Pete is a big part of this too. But Brandon Nimmo, who just <laughs> came back, and of course I feel bad for whatever. But like those are the guys that I'm curious about because who is going to be on this next? Lindor's here. He's not going anywhere, right? He yes. even went as far as to say, I had the same conversation with Billy and I feel great. That's that's Lindor. He is always going to say the right thing and and you know toxic positivity. We love a toxic, toxic positivity. positivity. Right. But he has no okay. choice at this point. You know, it's one thing to say that you know three weeks before the deadline. Now it's just like, well, what is he? He's stuck, right? But that's the thing. That's the element that I'm so fascinated by, and really where I know what is this next step. Because if it is trading Pete Alonso, this team is just going to suddenly look so different than what we all dreamed that it could be—a combination of a core and all the high-priced mercenaries. And so I guess my last question is like, do you really believe that that core is going to kind of dissolve around it? And this is going to be a drastically different team or are they actually going to be better next year than we think? Um, I think they could be better next year than we think. I think they could be better for the rest of this year than we think. Like, I think that they could win more games than they might want to based on the front <laughs> opposite decisions, because there's still a lot of players who need to regress to a mean that should not be where they're at right now. Um, but full, like, I want to make it clear, like if they do dip into any of that core and start trading those players away, like they're not going to trade Nimmo now because he has seven years left on the deal or whatever. But like if they were to trade Pete, if they were to trade, you know, Beatty or if they were, God forbid, I know Alvarez is untouchable at this point after what he's done when he's come up. But if they were to trade a person like that, I feel like less strong about McNeil, but it would have to be like for the right thing because he's so like boom and bust. But any of those guys who I would consider like part of that young core that the free agents that they signed were not the free agents that they traded away at this deadline were not part of that same young core. Then 
to me, like I would I would happily come back on this here beloved podcast that I listen to every week and I would use the exercise term cocked pistol <laughs> to switch us into DEFCON one. Mexicon okay. one. Well, so, we'll what, what, what one thing yeah. and then I'm I'm done. What I am hearing is an embrace of the upcoming slide into irrelevance, Bobby. <laughs> the Mets for the last two years have been front page news. Yeah. Steve Cohen's coffins, his coffers, not his coffins, his coffers. You don't know what's got what's buried within his <laughs> closet. Know. He's got coffins, maybe, he's, maybe. I don't maybe know. Maybe he's keeping the money in the coffins. Steve Cohen has made this team incredibly relevant over the last two years. <laughs> yeah, and it but feels not like that good. Yeah, but isn't it better to matter, man? Like, how do you feel about this not matter? Like, it's going to be irrelevant. I feel like I had, and I don't know if I speak for any subsect of Mets fans in this, but my personal experience is that they mattered so much last year, and it was, like, so high stakes with the division race basically starting in April and watching the Braves just stalk us down like Michael Myers in Halloween and you knew it was coming and you could feel it coming and every single instinct that you have as a Mets fan is like of course they're gonna blow this this is just 2007 part two you know this is 2008 part three so it just that level of investment watching the team because they were so good and so fun and doing it in a different way than the rest of the teams which is part of the reason that they're not good this year anymore because they stopped hitting for contact and started stopped converting runners in scoring position which Maybe Billy Epler should have known that that was not as sustainable coming into this season. But being so invested in that team honestly took away my ability to be as invested in this year's team and maybe next year's team. I don't really know. It's like kind of like a year to year thing, because totally. when you care that much about every single June and July game, and I think a lot of people feel this way, it's really hard to just commit to that again, when, especially when you know that the, te- the other team in your division, the Braves, is the best team in baseball like kind of by like a, a wide margin and they're going to be that way for the next three to five years based on the, the roster that they've already secured like that that is a really crushing thing to admit and i'm sure braves fans are just slapping this up you know like nice cream sunday they're just slapping this up but it's the truth it's the truth to what it feels like to be a fan of another team in that division and i'm sure other you know i'm sure phillies fans feel the same way even though they made the world series last year yeah i think they're doing a little bit better then you guys, Bobby Wagner, thank you so much for the time. As always, everybody listen to Tipping Pitches. Support everything that Bobby's about. And uh, thanks for coming on and, and giving us this rating. We'll see how soon we need to do it again. Hopefully, you can have a little bit of a break and watch some low-stakes baseball. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Chris Tyler. You are my guys. Thanks again to our dear friend Bobby Wagner for joining us for some Mets Con. Now, if you're a Mets fan and you're like, wow, that didn't put me in a good mood. Well, good news. What you are about to hear is a conversation we had just before the Futures game with one of their new top prospects. That is Drew Gilbert. Uh, It was a fantastic conversation with the young outfielder. You're going to hear us talk about his time at the University of Tennessee, his transition into pro ball, and then a fantastic story at the end. Uh, about him growing up in Minnesota. If you're a Twins fan, you're going to enjoy some of that talk. So uh, without further ado, enjoy our conversation. Again, from from a few weeks ago when he was still in the Astros, but I think you'll have a good time getting getting to know Drew Gilbert here. A really fun player, really cool, really cool guy. Um, so take a listen to this. Uh, enjoy our conversation with new Mets prospect, Drew Gilbert. Drew, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? So Drew, you might be a 
professional baseball player now, but I am not mincing words here when I say you are a college baseball icon. <laughs> like genuinely, 100%. Like when we look back on the 20, like this decade of college baseball players, Drew Gilbert hmm. will be right up there for your time at the University of Tennessee. Capped off with an ejection. No, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What a way to go out. See you. Yeah, it, in some ways, in some ways fitting for those of you who watched the 2021 Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, now, we're not going to go too nitty gritty into the the college baseball universe here, but we, we, we are going to obviously start there because that team and, and what kind of Tennessee baseball did for college baseball in general, for better or for worse, as some would argue, you were, of course, one of one of the, the main characters. That What was it like being on a team like that that could get that much attention from a national level? Obviously, some for better, some for worse. Yeah, I just, I mean... I think just to sum it up, it was just a good time. Yeah, <laughs> it was very genuine. Like Super when you genuine. watched none of the none of the thing watching Tennessee, whether you liked it or didn't like it, none yeah. of it seemed forced. Like it clearly was something that you all were rally around. And I think the head coach had a lot to do with that. I mean, yeah. Like Tony Tony Vitello was was as enabling as you're going to get in, in a positive way. I would say. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that. I think, you know, I guess, you know, you watch me and you know you maybe have your thoughts, and I'm not going to sit here and say they're wrong. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to play how I want to play. Um, you know, if you beat me and you want to talk back to me, I'm all for it. So, you know, I just I just like having fun. And where does that come from, do you think? Like when you were growing up in Minnesota, we have this idea of like, hey, come on in, Minnesota, kind, nice, shake your hand, whatever. And the way that you play is so fiery and so passionate. Were you like that coming up in, in high school? Yeah, I think it's always kind of been, you know, maybe not to that extent, but like, a certain degree yes yeah um i always kind of had that like i don't want competitive fire or whatever we right, call right. it um but i think you know you get into college it's a bigger stage all that and it just kind of gets amplified a little more so. so why why tennessee because uh you know the, the sec can certainly recruit from all over yeah. and tennessee has certainly evolved into uh, you know a powerhouse recently but how, how did you end up there uh, as a kid from minnesota yeah so i was actually originally committed to oregon state and then they had a bunch of coaching changes and i ended up like decommitting from there and open things up again. It's like my end of my senior year. So yeah, so late. I don't have much time. Yeah. Um, and Coach uh, V, he had recruited me my sophomore year in high school too. So we had talked a few years back, reconnected again. I finally visited Tennessee and like as corny as it sounds, and I hate when people say this, but it's so true. Like, like it just, when you know, you know, and like it just felt right. Like just the coaching staff, like they were, they were genuine because a lot of like college recruiting, you'll get, you know, oh, you're going to come in and, you know, be the Friday night guy right away. And I hated hearing that. Cause like, you don't know that. Right. Like I just want to be told like, you'll earn what you get. <laughs> right. 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 That's what they told me. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's genuine. Great. So I can I, go do that. I can trust them. You yeah. Know? So mm -hmm. that was a big thing with me. So you were the, what the number one ranked lefty pitcher <laughs> coming out of Minnesota <laughs> yeah. as a high schooler. How much did you throw at Tennessee at all? Uh, I threw a little bit. I mean, I guess our freshman year, which yeah. is a COVID year. So sure. Not, not much. We won't really know. Um, and then not as much my sophomore year because, like, after my freshman year, it kind of started trending towards, okay, like, I'll probably end up being a position player. But I was still throwing a little bit in, like, midweek games. Like, When's the last point? time you got on a rubber? Oh, gosh. Uh, probably the last midweek game I threw in. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, sophomore year, probably? Because you didn't – there's no way you pitched last year no, at all, right? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably walked. I was like, I would have known if <laughs> – somehow got out of it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was your, your style of your style yeah. of pitching? You were the, the, the high-wire reliever who was yeah. coming in, and it was like, this could go terribly, this could go yeah, great. Yeah, we didn't really know, but 
I mean, that's kind of why I guess we got away from that. <laughs> so uh, on offense, like describe, I, I normally hate this question, but I think you are such a unique player that I, I do want to hear how you describe this. Like what, what is your game? Because it's not just the persona. Like you look different than a lot of players because you're smaller, because you have big power for someone your size. Like what is, what does your game look like? And are there other players that you feel like, Oh, I could be like that guy. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I, I don't know. I get that question. I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people get asked that question and, I don't really know exactly like what my how, what, I how do you that. answer that right yeah. yeah you know what I'm saying I guess like I try to I, I don't want to have like a weakness to say yeah you know um, mm. I know and I'm okay admitting this like I'm obviously I'm a six foot five yeah I don't have any crazy power potential mm-hmm. and sure my potential isn't as high as some other people but sure. that's on me to just be as well rounded as I possibly can yeah. be so I think that's figure like, it out like a big thing for me yeah um I mean and then I know I got to be pretty efficient too with my moves because I. I'm not a big guy, so <laughs> right, right. So, when yeah. when you were growing up in Minnesota, when did you realize you were good at baseball? Because I would imagine you were one of the better players in your little league team, and you were good in middle school. What you know? At what point does it go from I'm good for my little league team to I could play high level college ball, I could play professional baseball? Yeah, I think I always knew I was like pretty good, but I don't think it was so like, oh, now I realize I can like play at like this level yeah. for me it was like i'm always i'm going to play at this mm-hmm. level like no it was from when i was eight years old like i was you, know, you knew when you were eight yeah, years like, old i wasn't like i it was like i'm not stopping until i'm a big like a 10 year big leader and how do your parents ha- like handle that like oh we got this eight-year-old kid like he's gonna be 10 year big leader like yeah i mean at least to my face it never said anything but i, I don't know what they say behind my back so, so they they kind of they recognize that in you early and they're like yeah. we're gonna do everything we possibly can to give drew the opportunity to be what he wants to be yeah i think what was great about my parents is they never you know they just wanted me to do what i want to do they didn't you know i know a lot of dads and they try to like push their sons too much and i just don't think that works at the end of the day um long term um i think you just gotta let your kid do your thing and that's how you find out what you really want to do because if you need to be pushed at something you probably don't want to do it too bad and as you just said like you had no need of being more driven than you already were at, as you said as young as eight i'm curious now we we transition into pro ball I mean, we talk to guys about this all the time the the kind of totally difference in just what it feels like to play baseball in an sec packed house where people are screaming at you or they're screaming for you if you're at home you know at lindsey nelson and now you're just in the minor leagues and i know you got hurt last year so that you didn't have that many games um you know coming out of college but now even to this year you're going from like a packed lindsey nelson stadium to no one there or even if there are people there it's not the same intensity. It's the most important baseball game you've ever played in your life <laughs> with your best friends in the world to a thousand people and a bunch yeah. of strangers. Right? Yeah. No, for sure. It definitely is an adjustment. Yeah. Um, like it, that was definitely somewhere I was like, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, find a way to yeah. lock in every single night. Cause not only is it, you know, you go from a packed house to not as many fans, but it's not as many fans like every single night. Cause you're right. playing every single day. Um, but I think that's kind of a mental thing at the end of the day. Cause it, it is a job now, yes. so it doesn't really matter like if you like it or not. You just your job is to go do it as well as you can. Uh, so I like that. Yeah, I that's such an interesting approach to it. It's like, oh yeah, what am I going to do? Complain? <laughs> what, what am I going to do? Do it poorly? Well, oh, right. And obviously, you also still know like this is the opportunity you wanted all along. Yeah. Right. And so you're going to make the most of that. And if I want to play in front of packed houses again, I I, I better I, get I, I, I you know 
figure it out. My last question for you: What's your first? Uh, what's your first Major League Baseball memory? When you think back to when you were a kid, like watching games, like what do you think about? Oh, okay, I thought you were talking about like my career, and I was like, well, I'd say running into a wall last year. <laughs> <laughs> that happened very quickly. No, no, no. As a, as a fan, yeah. like as a kid, yeah. I don't know if you're a Twins fan or what, but yeah. like, yeah, who were who some earlier players or games that you remember? Yeah, so my mom actually, she used to work for the Twins. She worked for them for about twenty years, and um, were like the players like drop their kids off for the game, like the babysitting room. Mm-hmm. She ran that. So I actually had been around like the twins, like basically oh. my whole childhood. Okay. So yeah. like who were some players that you Joe remember? Mauer, like Joe Mauer. Yes. Those that's the I mean, yeah. those are the guys. Yeah, so is Joe Mauer like God for little Drew Gilbert? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he must have his everything about the Joe Maurer story doesn't almost doesn't feel real. Right. Um, And so I imagine I mean, I assume you met him. You you, you, have you have you met him as a as a like. Okay. When's when's last time you talked to Joe Maurer? Oh, I don't mean it's been a while. Okay. 10 years. Okay. Okay. But I mean, I haven't talked. Oh, man. We got to make that connection again. That's that's got to be. No, he's awesome. He's about he's like the nicest, most humble. Of course. Like. You probably won't find a bad thing about that. Guy. Oh, yeah. So your mom would like bring you to work and like you would just kind of hang out with all like the players kids in the room. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would. Yeah. That's that's yeah, right, right. But yeah, no. Was, so were you like friends with the other players kids or were you yeah, just I, there? You were just like around. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, wow. a little bit of both. Fascinating. Diapers. He's just like, okay. So I've never changed a diaper. <laughs> Me neither. Oh, man. Jordan, All right. Did you change a diaper? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. Uh, on that fantastic note, Drew Gilbert, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. And we're back at the end of a lengthy episode of Baseball Barbacast. Hope you enjoyed it. Whole lot to cover. The trade deadline is over. And now I feel prepared and ready to traverse the mysteries of the last two months of this 2023 baseball season. Final question for you, Jake. Who is going to look weirdest in their new uniform? I have a a very clear selection. Eh, There's a lot of good selections. I know we've already seen some of them like Lucas, but who's your pick for weirdest in a new uniform that we will see in the coming days? Rich Hill in the Padres City Connect uniform. Oh, man, you're so right. Okay. I don't think I can top that. I was going to say, I was going to say Josh Bell in the Marlins, <laughs> old school, the, the Florida Marlins unis will be uh, really special. But I think, I think that, is, that is probably my pick. But there's definitely some good ones, and we will see those in the coming days. Jack Flaherty in something other than a Cardinals jersey. But for me, it has to be Rich Hill because. Those uniforms are so hello, fellow kids. <laughs> and Rich Hill wearing them accentuates that vibe to the 100th degree. Yes, totally, totally, totally agree. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jake, for co-hosting. Thank you to Bobby Wagner. Thank you to Drew Gilbert. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing this episode. And we'll be back on Friday after we watch some more ball and decide whether all these deadline winners and losers were actually totally the other way around. Enjoy the next couple of days. We'll talk to you on Friday. Serious XM Podcasts. <laughs> 